Welcome to Pip Talk, a podcast featuring interviews with rebels, visionaries, mystics, outliers, change makers, and people I find interesting. I am your host, Pip. Today, we are talking with Ruin Riggs. Ruin is an autistic, queer, non-binary polytheist who is way into land back, housing justice, queer and trans rights, and labor organization. Hi, Ruin. Hi, Pip. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And the first thing I want to hear about is what is Land Back? Yes. So Land Back. Uh, now, granted, there are um, uh, there are probably uh, uh, better people to ask than me, a random white person. Mm-hmm. But uh, my base. But basically, my understanding of it is that it. Um, uh, Land back is sort of uh, synonymous with indigenous sovereignty and um, and basically just like having the care of the land or like or like letting letting the original stewards of the land take care of the land, like take care of their traditional lands. Um, And uh, I'm not sure exactly like. I'm not sure what all it involves. I'm I'm. I'm fairly fresh with it, but um, but I am very excited about it, and I have gotten the chance to uh, to uh, to work with like a couple of uh, or at least one indigenous group, um, just kind of volunteering, doing farm work, and what have you. Mm. Um, so that's been fun. I, hopefully, that wasn't too much of a tangent. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But um... It seems like a very direct answer. And I mean, I, I understand the, the draw to, to indigenous sovereignty. I mean, I'm, I'm all about it. Like, I think that it's great. Um, and I don't think anybody who's listening to my podcast would say why, you know, I don't think anybody, any reasonable person would say, why would you do this? Like, it seems like an obvious answer why we should do it. Cause that land was stolen from totally. people. And those, you know, the, the descendants of the people it was stolen from are still alive. So like, yes, all about it. <clears throat> I think the why is an easy question. I think how is a really hard question. Definitely, um, definitely. And that's where, and that's where I think it's, it's best left to, to the people that it most affects. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that, uh, I know that in my, in both my, in both my, my spiritual practice and just in my secular life, um, I've been trying to, I've been trying to, you know, live more, more harmoniously with the land. Like, um, I'm, I'm a big animist. And so I recognize, you know, the existence of land spirits. Um, and, and I think that, I think that it's, it's within humanity's best interest to, to, to live right with the land. And uh, so that we don't kill it and everything on it, like we're doing basically. Word. Yeah. Um, so I totally understand that you are not necessarily the expert on this. And as you say, you are a random white person. Um, <laughs> you know, at some point later on, I would, I would love it if you could connect me with people who 
you know, are really doing that work um, and who would be more experts in their own sovereignty work. Um, but right now, the conversation we're having is with you and me, and we're both white. And I think we can explore a little bit the how, like, um, I'm, I, I'm just always really curious about it, you know, because like, here I am living in Chicago, which mm -hmm. is the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, which is the Potawatomi, Odawa, and Ojibwe. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> and I, you know, I've said it enough times that I actually haven't memorized, which, you know, I'm proud of, but what does that do? I don't know, probably nothing. Um, but, you know, I, I live in an apartment, I pay rent uh, so that my child can go to a nearby high school, you know, like, um, I contribute to the local economy, whether I like it or not, I've just accepted that I'm part of that system. Um, but what, I mean, what can I do? Is there anything I can do that you know of to, to help the cause? Well, one of the things that I did recently was, uh, uh, because, you know, I, I, I moved to Portland, uh, not too long ago and, um, I've been here some total of a week and a couple of days. Um, and so, so one of the things that I've done in my idle time is, uh, is just, um, there's always a lot going on in Portland, as I imagine there's a lot going on in Chicago. And, uh, and one of the things that I decided to do was, was just a simple Google search. And I looked up, uh, I looked up, you know, in like, for example, indigenous led, uh, organizations and or events in Portland, Oregon. Mm. And, um, and I came upon this group called ALOA um, that is, uh, that does a lot of, uh, that they have, uh, they have volunteers come out to the farm uh, the last, uh, the last Saturday of every month. And, uh, and so I literally found this place like the day before that day and, uh, and, and was able to come out and do some volunteering where I uh, uh, burned myself out in the summer heat uh, weeding corn <laughs> and spent the rest of the time shelling fava beans. Um, and uh, overall made some, it was a good time, made some, made some good connections, but I would say just like linking up with like uh, linking up with, with local like indigenous organizations. I, I did remember I did remember that there's one, uh, there is an organization called the NDN Collective. And um, I don't remember what exactly they do. I just know that, I just know that upon discovering it, it was, it was really fascinating to me. And I, I, I subscribed to, uh, I, I subscribed to be on their mailing list. And, and uh, so there's, there's like, like I said, just kind of like, you know, sometimes a simple Google search goes a really long way and, and you can start to, you can start to make those connections and, and, uh, and, you know, and eventually with enough luck, you, you find where you plug in. That makes really good sense. Yeah, I know in Chicago, uh, the one group I know of is uh, Midwest Soaring Foundation and soaring as an acronym at Save Our Ancestors Resources and Remains Indigenous Network Group. Um, I Ooh. actually did a video for them 
in 2005. So like, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of connected to them. I actually got to uh, go to powwows and videotape. Like I felt like such an intrusion, you know, like I, um, I feel that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, I was just like, Oh, I know how, you know, cause like, um, as a under, I'm talking a lot about me today. Apparently that's the kind of data is, but (laughs) that is totally all right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I, um, you know, I went there and, and one of my favorite, like I, I ended up when I was an undergrad, um, I wanted to be a filmmaker, couldn't get in, or I did get into film school, but, um, didn't get the financial aid for it. So I went to a state school. I ended up majoring in art and I minored in film studies, um, and writing two different minors. Um, and the film studies classes were almost all uh, tied in with the sociology department. So, mm-hmm. um, so I watched a lot of movies and like really studied how film uh, explores sociological subjects, you know. Definitely. Um, and one of my favorite uh, classes was ethnic film and literature. And, you know, so we talked about the ways that you know, the media and Hollywood and all that has really, you know, done a terrible job of depicting people of color, BIPOC people, uh, indigenous people. Um, And so, yeah. So even though I had permission to be at that powwow uh, with my tripod, with camera, with a crew, um, I felt really uncomfortable, you know, like I was just like, oh my God, I'm a burden. And like, I'm, being too white right now and like you know I have so much potential to do harm and you know um were you about to say something oh yeah my I I have a yeah my therapist actually gave me a really really like like a really cool framework in which to in which to look at whiteness as it relates to indigeneity Mm. um so so for context, um, uh, I'm, I'm part native myself and, um, my, my great grandma was of one of the Ottawa tribes, uh, funny enough. And, um, and I, I remember telling my therapist one time that I wanted to be that at some point in my life, I wanted to, to travel to Michigan and, and like, and then after that, it's like, I don't know if I have like a specific goal in mind, but it's just that like, I want to, like, I want to become acquainted with the tribe and I want to be able to, to make myself useful to them in some fashion. Okay. And, uh, but I also told my therapist who's native herself, I said, I said, I also don't want to overstep my boundaries as a white person. And even though I have native ancestry, it's like how much of, how much of this culture really is mine to reclaim? How much would be out of bounds? Yeah. And what she told me was that, um, was that whiteness was what stole my indigeneity from me. Mm. and and I and that just that blew my mind because it's like 
because, you know, I think about it and I think about, you know, my, my great grandmother's experiences, um, surviving, you know, uh, Mount Pleasant's, uh, the, the Mount Pleasant boarding school. Um, and I, I think about the fact that she, she raised a child like as a single mother, um, mostly alone. And, and the fact that if, if that had not happened, well, I mean, apart from the possibility that I might not exist, if I were to exist, I would very likely be indigenous and whiteness is sort of the reason why I'm not. Mm. And I find it to be, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like kind of like alienating, I guess, Mm -hmm. because, because I feel like, I feel like as white people, we're, we're sort of like, you know, we're sort of like the, it's like, it's like, we're, we're sort of like our, our racialization is pretty much invisible Mm -hmm. because we're considered sort of the default. But as a consequence of that, I think we are, we we're like, like, I don't want to say cultureless, but that's where my, that's where my, my brain keeps landing. And I don't know, that might've been kind of rambly, but. um, No, I totally agree with you. It's, it's, um, you know, it's not the exact words that I've used, but I've ranted about this a number of times. Um, and, and a lot of people are talking about it and everybody just uses different words to say the same thing. You know, like another term I've heard is unmarked categories, you know, so yeah. like whiteness is usually unmarked, you know, if mm-hmm. you're black, indigenous, Asian, Pacific Islander, whatever, that's usually noted or it is marked. You know, um, same way with, you know, male, straight, cis, uh, non-immigrant, you know, or all those things, you know, so, uh, you know, the people in power get unmarked and they're considered the normal. And then anybody outside of that is unmarked. Um, And so there's this idea that, and a lot of people think that whiteness doesn't, or isn't a culture or is cultureless, you know, I mean, but there is culture to it. It's just, but it is rendered invisible by the fact that we don't mark it. Um, for sure. For and sure. I totally yeah. agree with you that uh, whiteness, um, you know, steals us away from indigeneity, um, not only, you know, for someone such as yourself who has, you know, recent um, Ottawa, just, you know, ancestry, uh, you know, like, my ancestors came from Germany and Norway. Like I'm exactly 50, 50 split um, because of the way that immigrants were segregating themselves in the United States when they came here. So like both of my parents kind of, you know, were within their own communities. So I'm exactly 50, 50. Um, And, you know, you go far enough back, like my answers, ancestors totally would have worshipped Thor and Odin and all of our favorite, you know, heathen gods, you know, and and that was an indigenous religion. Like, you know, we go far enough back, like there, you know, there was a a sense of culture and, and, and being indigenous that, um, you know, cause like pagan means of the land, right. You know, so like, yeah, if you go, you know, it's more of the original definition, you know, like it really just meant people who were tied to a place. Um, and it's kind of gotten away from that now, particularly with neo-paganism and neo-heathenry. But 
but I mean, that rut is still there. Um, for sure. And as part of why I personally am so passionate about, uh, you know, heathenry and, and just paganism in general, um, you know, and just always imagine I'm saying new in front of them. I just don't like how it sounds, but like they, I'm yeah, aware that, that they, yeah, I'm aware that it's neo-paganism and neo-heathenry, but I'm not going to say it that way every time. Um, but anyway, it's why I'm so passionate about them. One of the reasons, you know, is because like, it's a way of claiming a culture, you know, that I can own, you know? And I think exactly. that, that that sense of like a vacuum that whiteness is, I think it's part of why how fascism steals as much as it does. And I think it's part of why, um, you know, cultural appropriation is such a thing, you mm-hmm. know, is because whiteness is kind of a vacuum. You know, like it's always Definitely. hungry and it's always stealing things, you know, like it's, it's definitely by its very nature. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause like, um, I was actually talking to someone the other day about how my first interview on the show with Ryan Smith was, you know, about anti-fascism and heathenry. I was talking to Steve Smith about it, who was unrelated to Ryan. And we were having another conversation on this podcast that I would recommend. But anyway, you know, I was talking to him about Ryan. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting, neo-fascism and heathenry. And I was like, yeah, like, isn't it perfect? And he's like, well, kind of, you know, because you do hear about fascists who are, you know, claiming North heritage as theirs, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it's, it's not just Norse pagans that are dealing with that, you know, like other pagans are the new age movement, you know, uh, has some fascist elements you know christianity was was, you know in uh, you know the nazis the german nazis uh you know co-opted christianity um during their reign of terror in you know the early part of last century um Mm -hmm. you know like my one of my favorite uh ministers, you know, I sort of consider him a spiritual ancestor, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, you know, is really famous for his resistance of the Nazis or his attempted resistance of the Nazis. And he was a Lutheran minister and like the whole church in Germany just gave over to the Germans, you know, to the point where ministers were, you know, really not accepted if they didn't. Um, but it, it gave over part and parcel because, you know, Nazis love stealing shit and using religion to convince people that they're doing the right thing, you know? Totally. Yeah. And I think that's, and I think that's likely true of, of every like sort of like not school of thought, but that's, but like, I guess for lack of a better term, school of thoughts that like revolve around like that of which like whiteness is a crucial part. Hmm. um I think yeah it's like sorry my brain is kind of just off the wall today (laughs) it's so good I think it's that kind of day (laughs) (laughs) definitely I've been I've been idle too long um but yeah like um but yeah I think that I think that Yep. Nope. Lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> it happens. It happens. Um, I guess, uh, I guess, I guess piggybacking off of, uh, off of like a, 
a vaguely like a, a similar like previously talked about point mm. like of, about you know sort of the sort of the hegemony of whiteness um i think that's also like speaking as a queer person um i think that's also why a lot of white queers like really like uh, like attached to like their queerness mm. because oh. it's yeah like i feel like i feel like it's sort of like in some cases like in in some unfortunate cases i i feel like people people use queerness as as a crutch to sort of distance themselves from the white privilege that they experience mm. um but uh which you know of course isn't to say that isn't to say that like queerness itself grants any privileges because gods know it sure fucking doesn't but sure, um, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think, you know, um, this is only a half-baked thought, so I, hopefully it comes out in some form or fashion. Um, but I think, you know, something that you made me think was that um, you know, I think people, particularly people who live in a lot of those unmarked categories. Mm-hmm. Um I think that there's an unsettling you know, speculation. This is speculation, but that they, they have an unsettling feeling that somehow they're part of the problem because they're in line with so many of the status quo ways of being, mm-hmm. you know, like I think people sense that like the status quo is destructive, you yeah. know, whether it's patriarchy or white supremacy or white supremacist thinking or, you know, capitalism um, you know, but there's a sense of like, wow, this is a destructive world. And I don't want to identify with that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And like, and being an outsider, even though it sucks and it comes with a lot of, you know, difficulties too, like it's not being part of the machine. It's being, you know, outside of the machine. And also like, it's a culture you can hold on to in a way that you can't hold on to whiteness. Because totally, whiteness is totally. a vacuum. Like it, queerness is more something and maybe more tangible. Um, yeah. Even though like queerness is, you know, um, so changeable and varied and fluctuating. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Like, I think that, um, let's try not to lose my train of thought again. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I myself am, am, you know, have been guilty of, of exactly the thing that I've talked about where it's like, where it's like, you know, where like, sometimes it can, it can feel like, it can feel like when, when people point out the, the parts of you that do have like, that are privileged, mm-hmm. like I can, I can understand like, you know, sort of this, sort of this knee jerk reaction to, to be like, to be like, what? No. Oh no. But I'm oppressed in these categories. Like don't diminish that. And it's like, even when, even when like, it's not necessarily being diminished, it's more of like a, just like a a gentle reminder of like, of like, Hey, yeah. I mean, you can, like you can 100% be hate crime for being visibly queer, mm. but it will not be because you're white. Yeah. And if you were queer and black, like the problems compound, you know, exactly. Intersectionality. Exactly. No, um, 
Yeah. I mean, cause I, you know, like I'm sort of a mix, like I'm definitely white, no question mm -hmm. about it. Like my ancestors are actually totally completely fair skinned and I am, you know, pale as a fish belly. Um, so I definitely have white privilege, no question, no doubt about it. And, you know, well, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of education, which is nice, you know, like I grew up in this country, so I, I definitely have privilege categories. Um, mm -hmm. But I, you know, I'm also queer, I'm non-binary, I'm disabled, um, I'm mentally ill, you know, so there's ways in life that, you know, are legitimate struggles, you know, like totally my mental illness is totally a disability and it totally affects my ability to access resources, to be taken seriously, you know, to interact with life in a productive way, um, you know, all of that. Um, I feel that. Yeah. Big yeah. time same. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we know from your bio that you're outside of, of some of the marked or you're, you're in some marked categories as well. You're not For sure. totally in privilege. Like you, you're autistic, queer, non-binary, polytheist, you know, activist. Um, so you definitely live outside of the margins in, in some ways as well. And some of those ways are chosen to some yeah. extent, um, but some of them, you know, are not. So yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting thing, but I'm going to go back to something we were talking about like 10 minutes ago or 15 minutes yeah. ago. Um, yeah. Uh, so when I was at that powwow, I was feeling uncomfortable about my whiteness because of all the things we're talking about Yeah, you know, as aware of how destructive it was. And I didn't want to be that person. Um, you know, there was a couple instructions that I got, which was, you know, don't put your tripod inside of the ring of chairs that surrounds the powwow or the the actual dancing area of the powwow because the powwow is kind of like the dancing area but it's kind of also the main of the whole event which includes everything including vendors and stuff mm -hmm. um, but not to put anything with metal legs any any kind of you know don't put that inside the circle that surrounds the dancers and don't um record any of the there was certain I don't remember now but there were certain songs they said do not record mm -hmm. um they said the rest of the songs you can but you know don't record these songs and uh, they're sacred songs I don't remember which ones um because this was 2005 um yeah but but you know like I was allowed to record dancing which you know I got some really great footage I was really lucky you know I got some good interviews and stuff like it, it was a good video um and you know actually someone who I'm going to be interviewing in the future Bill Buckholtz um I met him that day and I'll just tell this story and then we can get back to our topics but you know I was walking down the path at the powwow and I was carrying a bunch of stuff you know because like film production includes a lot of gear totally and, you know, I was trying to hurry, but I was trying to also be really respectful and like give people a lot of space and like not, you know, walk up on someone real fast, even though I was in a hurry because I didn't have a lot of time till I got to my next thing. Um, so I kind of had to go fast, even though everybody was going slow, but I was trying not to like, you know, I hate it when I'm walking and someone walks up really fast behind me, you know, like, yeah. I hate that. So I was trying not to do that kind of thing. Like I was trying to give people space. Anyway, so I'm walking, all of a sudden I become aware there's a man coming my way 
you know, kind of in the same path that I'm going, you know, so I step a couple steps to the left so that I can go around him. He goes a couple steps the same way, you know, I'm like, oh shit, you know, so then I like go the other way. He goes the other way. And like, finally, mm-hmm. like I came, you know, I was really in my head, you know, worrying about all these things. And finally, like I came into the moment and I was like, I like really looked at him, you know, cause sometimes we do that dance with each other on accident, yeah. you know, like we're both like, Oh, 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 Oh. And we like dance doing the same moves and getting in each other's way, you know, <laughs> might even have to stop, you know? And I did end up having to stop, you know, because we kept doing the thing. But when I came into the moment, like I looked at his face and he was grinning from ear to ear and I realized he was fucking with me. <laughs> you know? (laughs) And I just started laughing, you know, I was just like, okay, all right. You know, I need to chill. And it was like a moment of realizing like, okay, people are okay with me being here. You know, not that this one person is a monolith representing everybody, but like here was a native person who's okay with me being here, was relating to me on a human level, giving me shit, you know, wasn't saying like, what's all that gear? You know, this isn't an, a sacred space, you know, like none of the things I was worried about. Yeah. Um, and I got to be, mo- you know, present in the moment. And, and we've been friends ever since, like, you know, I'll That's have so them on cool. the show soon. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's beautiful when you can have a moment to come outside of like all of that friction totally. and complicatedness like it's important that we talk about all these things you know because otherwise it just goes on being invisible and powerful you know but like at the same time like we have to be human yeah yeah and I think and I think that's where that's where just like just like the fact that you were that you were vulnerable enough to like to like you know you it's like to put yourself in that space and, and just like be open to having those, those human connections Mm. is, I think it, I think it matters a lot, like, especially in terms of, in terms of anti-racist work. Um, because I mean, like, I guess, I guess the, I guess the, I guess the simple way of, of saying this is just like, yeah, it's, it's real easy if you approach people like people, (laughs) But like, <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna way overcomplicate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I I remember. Um, I've had I've had similar similar experiences, but on a but on, on a different sort of on a different sort of axis. Um, axis. That's the word. <laughs> um, like uh, I spent the last. I spent the last year and a half of my life um, uh, working primarily with folks experiencing homelessness, mm. and um, and that has been like the experiences that I've had in that field of work has just meant the absolute world to me mm. because you know I came I like when I came to this position I you know, I was also, I was also nervous because I was just like, I don't know how, you know, I'm like some like suburbanite. I've never had to worry about where my next meal is coming from. Mm. And, and I was, you know, kind of, I was kind of worried about making the wrong impression on people. And, um, 
or worse, you know, making people feel shitty about themselves. Yeah. And like, and, uh, and one of the things that, that ended up happening a lot was, you know, I, I made a lot of really, really, really cool connections just by being brave enough to be, to be vulnerable and sort of, you know, put my chips on the table. Hmm. Like I've, I've, I've gained a lot of, uh, I've gained a lot of really like, I mean, I have, I, I know people now that I just, I think the absolute world of, and like, I remember, uh, on our, on our last day. Uh, so, so I had my last day of work on, on June 30th because I was, you know, set to move to Portland in July. And, um, and when I, when I, I took a brief trip to Arizona, when I came back, uh, me and the guys from the shower trailer all had like a, all had like this, this party. And, um, and we had like a, like a, a going away party for me. And, uh, and boy, I cried like a little baby. <laughs> it was, it was wild. <laughs> like just, uh, me and me and my, like me and my, my ragtag group of folks, like, like, I just, I, I love all of them to bits and, and the thing is like I wouldn't have made those connections had I not like if I if I had been like if I had been like too stuck in my own head like I wouldn't have I wouldn't have made all those meaningful connections yeah so like so definitely like you know anti-racist work and and just any kind of like anti-oppression work as somebody in a position of privilege in in one axis or another takes a lot of bravery mm-hmm. and takes like it takes a lot of like you know putting putting oneself like sort of sort of like on the line in some in some way shape or form like even if it's just psychologically yeah absolutely well that paradigm changing that that happens when you're pushed outside of 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 the situations that you're accustomed to um you know, it's the same way, reason that travel, you know, can be earth shattering for a person, you know, because it's like stepping Definitely. outside of that, that comfort zone. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And, I've, and I've been, I've been running into that. I've been running into that here in Portland because, you know, it's, it's been, it's been kind of a culture shock. I mean, this is like, this is my first time living somewhere that's, not my little hometown in Southern Oregon. (laughs) And, uh, and it's, and especially it's my first time living apart from my family. Hmm. And, uh, and so it's been, it's been a bit of a transition, but I found, uh, as of, as of today, I found a job. Hmm. Um, so that's super cool. Congrats. Going to be, going to be doing some fundraising work for, uh, Defenders of Wildlife. Oh, um, so that's going to be super cool. Um, but for the most part, I've, I've spent, I've spent a lot of time just kind of, just kind of like, just, just kind of, just kind of idle, sad and homesick, Hmm. (laughs) but it does, 
but it really is getting better. And, and I'm, and as I've told, as I've told a lot of my family and friends, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the person I become like after having the experiences that I'm definitely going to have. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go uh, deep, uh, dip in just a little bit more into the topic of housing justice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You said that, you know, those experiences really meant the world to you and it kind of changed your perspective. I'm wondering if you can kind of give us an example of like a way that like that experience expanded how you thought about things in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. Let's see. So I would say like, um, so like, for example, you know, I, um, a lot of, a lot of the people around me when I started doing this work, uh, were nervous because, because, you know, because people associate like, like homelessness with crime. And, um, and so, so, you know, a lot of people expect like folks who are homeless to be, to be like, you know, like agitated, like drug addled, like aggressive. Mm. And, and certainly I, you know, certainly I met a few people that, that I, that I guess you could say fit that description, but, but for the most part, you know, it, it, like it helped, it, it helped going into like, to like, remember that, you know, I, I guess, first of all, that like, even on an economic level, I mean, we are all so much closer to being homeless than we are to say being billionaires. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, so, and so, and, and that in itself is, is somewhat of a paradigm shift when, when you, when you, grow up like pretty middle class and and you know you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from you don't have to worry about you know having a roof over your head I for one had a tremendous leg up living with my parents for as long as I did Hmm. um but but one of the things that like it's it's one thing logically to know that like like the people that that you are serving on a regular basis are people like and it's like logically i always knew that but but it's another thing to like actually experience it and experiences like and experience the sort of ups and downs and the nuances and the shades of gray that that come with those areas and um and one of the one of the one of like one of the the best most effective ways i've found uh for for making friends especially like especially as it relates to that community is just just being a a friendly non-judgmental face in the crowd Mm -hmm. like you know just just being somebody that people can people can come to and 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 you can be like, Hey, how's it going? And somebody will say, well, I'm hanging in there, but such and such thing happened or, or, you know, like some other bad things are going down and, and you sort of just, you just kind of, you just kind of listen and, you know, and you don't really, 
like it 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 was I I wouldn't say it was ever like easy to judge personally but but it definitely got it definitely got a lot harder to judge like uh. the more the more I learned and the more I experienced and like the fact of the matter is you know a lot of a lot of people in my position think that uh think that homelessness is like a character flaw like sure like, like you didn't play capitalism right so therefore yeah. you deserve to be here and like and like I and I met I've met a lot of like really good like like I've met a lot of like you know people who who directly defy that and you know who who did everything right but just I mean I've met people who I've met people who have been evicted for bullshit reasons like or you know some financial crisis or shit even the pandemic mm-hmm. you know like it's just uh and that's that's like one of the scary things about this work is not so much the people around you but just the knowledge that nobody's safe yeah yeah absolutely and what you said is so true like we're I mean we're not only closer all of us closer to being homeless than to being billionaires but like like a lot, lot closer, you know, like like most people are like a paycheck or two away. Like I've never even had that much padding, you know, like where I I could, I mean, currently I'm in school and getting financial aid. So I'm kind of cheating. Um, but like, I've never had enough income that I could save a month or two's worth of rent, you know, so that I could afford to get fired and like have a couple months to look for work. Like I've never had that kind of padding. You know, yeah. I've always been on the edge of homelessness and actually I've experienced homelessness too, uh, you know, for a time. And, uh, you know, um, one of the things that really struck me about it was um, sort of how much work it is to maintain any kind of, of um, cleanliness. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. you know, it's so hard to meet your basic needs. It takes all of your energy and time just to try to keep your clothes from getting to destroyed, like trying to find places to groom yourself. Yeah. Trying to find places to take a shit, you know, like, I mean, that's gross and, you know, kind of vulgar, but like, but I mean, it's those things, they take all your time, you know, like that's why, you know, when sometimes you see someone who is homeless, not always, you know, but occasionally you'll see a homeless person who just stinks. And it's really because, you know, they just didn't have the wherewithal, you know, a lot of homeless people don't stink and they look fine. You know, like you can't always tell a homeless person. So I'm not trying to like dig into stereotypes, you know, because a lot of people do put that work in, but it is a lot of work. You know, if it rains, you're fucked, you know, the elements, you know, and like, you know, food, you know, some people have food stamps, but you have to have an address to get those, you know, and like, you can't cook you know you can't store food like it's just so fucking complicated Um, totally yeah and it's it's a lot of it's a lot of things that you know a lot of middle class people take for granted totally yeah but yeah like like you said I mean it's it's so hard just to maintain like just a basic level of upkeep 
Yeah. Like, and, and the thing is, you know, like, uh, there was this, there was this fantastic analogy by, by Terry Pratchett, I believe. Hmm. Um, it was, um, it was talking like, he was talking about like the purchasing of shoes. So it's like, yes, you could yes, get, yes. Yeah. So it's like, you know, for, for those who, for those who aren't familiar, it's like, you've got, you've got, you know, the expensive pair of shoes that will last longer and that is better quality, or you can do the cheap pair of shoes that will break down uh, quicker and just doesn't last as long. Yeah. Most people can't afford the most expensive pair of shoes, but what ends up happening is, you know, like somebody who can't afford the more expensive shoes can go like, let's say five years without, without needing to buy another pair of shoes. Yeah. But, but the person who's buying the cheap pair, who oftentimes has no choice, but to buy the cheap pair yeah. keeps having to buy those shoes again and again and again and again and again. And what ends up happening is the person buying the cheap pair of shoes ends up paying more in the long run than somebody who bought the more expensive pair of shoes. Absolutely. Yeah. I Googled it. Fucking expensive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I actually Googled it. I'm I'm pretty good at listening and typing at the same time. So it's the the Sam Vimes boots theory of socioeconomic unfairness. Yes. Um, Often simply called the boots theory. Um, I, I fucking love Terry Pratchett. I could talk for the rest of the hour about Terry Pratchett. I actually got to see him live, but um, there's a couple of the things that Googled while you were talking. A um, couple of my favorite quotes. Uh, George Carlin said, the reason they call it the American dream is because you have to be asleep to believe it. Yes. Yeah. Which is so real. And then John Steinbeck once said that the reason that socialism never took root in America was because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And there are so many people who, who cling to the belief that, that, you know, if you work hard enough, you can get out of this and, and they see the, yeah. And they see what, what, very, very few examples exist. And they think, oh, so then it's possible, which means I must not be trying hard enough and I need to try harder. Yeah. And, and the worst part is when people apply that to everybody else around them and judge them accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting, you know, and that's such an American thing. Cause like, um, I, I went to India. I was, I was very fortunate and got to go to India in 2015. Um, it was through school. Um, so financial aid paid for it and, um, got to have some really amazing experiences. It's the only time I've left the country. Um, but we spent, uh, two of the three weeks we spent in Mumbai, which is a major city. Um, and we went and visited a slum right? We actually shot a documentary there of a nonprofit that was helping educate kids so they could try to get out of the slum. Interesting. Um, And it wasn't like necessarily one of the absolute worst slums, um, but it was definitely like not good. Like sanitation wasn't good. Um, You know, I hate to, you know, if 
foster any kind of discrimination people might have, but it did smell bad. Um, you know, people were crowded <laughs> I mean, in, people were crowded into tiny little homes that had like very makeshift roofs and, you know, uh, stuff like that. And, you know, our guide who was one of the employees at the nonprofit that we were making the film about, he said, like, is it really shocking to you to see a place like this? And I said, like, actually, no, it's not because mm -hmm. it's better. I mean, you know, at least this slum, I, I can't, I, I haven't seen the worst slums in India, so I can't just like compare those. But that particular slum we were in, I felt was better than what people in the United States have if they lose their home. You know, yeah. because, you know, this slum was a community. Yeah. Like they did have a little school where the kids could go. You know, the kids played together. They didn't really know any different. You know, they did, their houses were very small, but they were houses. You know, they had basic cooking implements and stuff. You know, it was, it was like being in a studio apartment, just more rickety. Um, you know, it, it had a sweetness to it, you know, and I tried to explain to him, you know, in the United States, if you are down on your luck, if you lose your job or something and you end up on the street, like, you know, you're kind of on your own, you know, here and there, yeah. you might get tent communities or things like that. But like, you know, society doesn't catch you. Like there's nowhere to go. And he's like, well, what about your family? And I was like, some people, their families will just completely ditch them because, mm -hmm. you know, they, they feel like they failed. There's a sense of moral failure and being poor in the United States. Yeah. And, he, and he was like, wow, I had no idea. And I'm like, yeah, you know, people talk about India, you know, poverty being so bad, you know, but it's like, in some ways it's better. Um, not to say it's mm -hmm. always better. I don't want to make total generalizations, but, but yeah, it, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I, I get that. Like, like, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the consequences of, you know, having this sort of like cultural mindset of just rugged individualism and mm -hmm. the bootstraps mentality. Um, I think it's, I think it's, you know, it like something, something Karl Marx alienation, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> it serves to like, you know, we're, we're not only alienated from, from the planet we live on and you know what we consume but we're also alienated from like not only the products of our labor but from each other yeah and and that's a really and i i can imagine it's it's really really isolating and yeah. i think that's why and i think that's why you know people who are who are down on their luck sometimes like that like really uh, that's why I think sometimes people really value like a friendly, just, just a, just a friendly face. I remember, um, I remember one time, uh, I, my mom, God, I love my mom. She was, uh, <laughs> she was, uh, like when, as soon as I started working with the homeless community, mm -hmm. um, she got like really gung ho into it as well. Aww. And uh, there was there was one time that, you know, between me, my dad, my mom and my grandma, we spent we spent like at least 800 bucks at Bymart just 
buying up a bunch of like sleeping bags and tents to like give out to folks along the greenway nice and and there was there was one time when uh there was one time like i think it was i think it was either christmas eve or new year's i believe it was new year's um my mom was like hey i just bought seven little caesar's pizzas and i'm gonna go hand them out along the greenway do you want to come along mm. and uh and i'm just like dude hell yeah i do Nice. And we we showed up and and you know thankfully we were not the only ones out there handing out food, um, which I thought was really really cool. Um, like uh, I know that uh, Hawthorne Mutual Aid in in my town does a lot of really really good work, um, but they they feed people on the regular and uh, and so we we were out there and you know and we we joined up with them and. And um, one one conversation that that my mom had with with one gentleman, um, he's he he told her and, and what, what he said really stuck with her. Uh, he said, he said, you know what I like about this conversation? And she asked him what? And he said, the eye contact. Mm. And like, and I, I think. I think that I think that like rushed like both me and my mom it had some it had yeah. some splash damage because yeah. like because holy shit like there's a in a similar vein there's a there's there's one gentleman that I had the absolute pleasure of working with um and of course you know I, I won't give out I won't give out a lot of details but um, but in a relatively short span of time, he lost basically everything and traveled across the country to Oregon because we have like state assisted suicide, um, only to then find out that you have to be a resident of Oregon for a year in mm. order to cash in on that. So, um, but, but when I, when I work with him, I like, I, uh, I, I helped him out and, and I listened to his story and I, done like, I, I did, I did everything in my power to, to make, to sort of calm the distress that he was feeling. And like, and of course, you know, once he left my office, I just had like a full scale breakdown because <sighs> holy shit, that was a lot. And, um, but he, but he showed up at the shower trailer like the following, like the next time I was out there. And he was he was the first person in line and he he showed up to, to help me set up and, and take a shower. And uh and he said, he said, I just wanted to thank you and and the the and your and your colleagues. And he said, he said, I've been looking for help for months and you are you were the first person to treat me like a human being mm. and like, holy shit. I mean, I think like that will, that will stick with me until the day that I die. Like, because not only like on, on one hand, on one hand, it was, it's such an honor to have been that person for him, but then like in the same breath like I just felt this this rage that I had to be the first one yeah that nobody else came before me 
And that was like, I, I, when I, when I tell people that story, I always say, I always say, I don't know if that's like my, my hero origin story or my villain origin story, but it's an origin <laughs> story of some kind, man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, but yeah, I've had, I've had some, I've had some, some truly, truly unforgettable experiences in that, in that line of work. And I, I could not be more grateful for it. It's real. True. Well, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. Um, I think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a good thing we're friends and we like know each other and stuff. Um, totally. Yeah. It, you know, and honestly, like I had a page full of questions, which is always what I start out with. Sometimes, you know, I'm 20 minutes into the interview and I've already covered most of the questions and I have to stretch for the rest of the time. Um, I always find something to talk about with people, but um, but I'm just saying sometimes I, I really have to push myself to do it. Um, uh-huh. but I had a page full of questions for you, just like I do every other time. And like, I barely touched them because <laughs> 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 we just got so into it, you know, yeah, um, totally. maybe we'll have to do a repeat another season or something. Oh, um, I would love to. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, but I, I guess for today, being we're basically out of time, um, just the last question that I would like to ask you is, is why the name Ruin? I am so glad you asked. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, I, so I picked the name Ruin myself and I, and I picked it about, about three years ago. And, um, and the thing is, I was, I was like, I was talking to some, some then friends of mine and I was like, sort of like, I was, I was sort of experimenting with my, with my gender identity. Like I was really starting to, to dig into it because I, I sort of realized that like, I, I sort of realized that like utter apathy towards one gender is more than likely a sign that you're not actually that gender. Mm. <laughs> so like, so like, for example, I, I, I always told my friends, I said, yeah, I'm only a girl because the doctor pulled me out of my mom and said so. <laughs> and, and at, it was, it was after like, you know, meeting my, my, like a lot of my trans friends that I was just like, wait, that's it. That's, that's it. That's the only reason <laughs> a little bit of a miniature scale crisis about that. But, um, but yeah, the name ruin came from, um, uh, at first, like it, it, the, the, the topic arose because, because my, my friends and I were talking about the tendency of non-binary people to choose like, like simple nouns for their names. Hmm. Like, uh, like, for example, like sock or river or <laughs> brick or scout, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I was just kind of like, and of course, like, you know, little, little egg me was just like, huh, I wonder what my name would be. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and, uh, and I latched onto ruin because I, I found it at a, uh, uh, I found it through, through, uh, some, some, uh, McElroy brothers content, um, specifically the, um, the fallout four episode of monster factory, uh, where, where wherein ruin was one of the final Pam's rejected names. Um, 
the the prompt for the character was sort of like the fifth horseman of the apocalypse <laughs> and i just thought it sounded metal as hell and so and so nice. i went with it but the thing is the more i thought about it like the more i've thought about it over over the few years that i've had this name uh the more fitting it feels to me because because the thing is you know like it like a little bit of a little bit of background context i used to be terrified of the end of the world i grew up with an anxiety disorder and like climate change like apocalyptic scenarios natural disasters those were a lot of the things that just that kept me up at night kept me unable to eat um and just just really really freaked me out but weirdly enough like here we are in 2022 and we feel and and at least to me it feels like we are so much closer to that now than we've ever been mm-hmm. and and weirdly enough i i think i think a, a bout of a, a particularly severe bout of depression i had when i was 15 like sort of killed my ability to feel generalized anxiety hmm. um which of course you know it then replaced it with a panic disorder so you know you win some you lose some <laughs> but but weirdly enough i am not afraid of the end of the world anymore like i'm really really not because because part of what i feel very strongly to be like sort of my purpose in life is like i i believe very strongly that the old world like the old way of doing things is is dying like real fast like hurtling towards destruction and and all the while a new world is struggling to be born and and to me ruin means that like to me ruin stands as a reminder of that and a reminder that the death of the old world is what's going to pave the way for the new and it's also a promise that i am going to be part of that process and i am going to face that down and i won't have well i can't say for certain whether whether or not i'll i'll ever be afraid of it but um but regardless i'm going to be a part of that process so that's the reason for my name i love it i love it <laughs> so you. much that's great and i'd love to comment more on it but we are so out of time so totally totally we will have to do a sequel at some point maybe in the fall. excellent looking forward to it <laughs> awesome well thank you again so much for coming on the show it has been a pure pleasure absolutely likewise hey all right bye bye take care thank you for listening please join us again another day on pip talk